On Sunday mornings, we've been going through Luke's Gospel together. This morning, we find ourselves in chapter 23. If you want to turn there together with me in your Bibles, and if you do need a Bible, we do have a few in the aisle. If you want a copy of the Scripture to follow along in God's Word with us, just hold your hand up. Last week, we finished up chapter 22. This morning, we're right at the beginning of chapter 23, verse 1, and we're kind of right in the middle of this scene of the trials of Jesus as he's now been arrested and taken into custody and kind of have this running narrative. This morning, we're going to actually look from verse 1 down through verse 25 as we continue to look at the next three trials, the civil trials that Jesus undergoes. And because of kind of the, the lengthy uh, portion of, of verses we're going to cover this morning, I'm going to refrain from reading uh, through them prior to the study as I would typically do. And that way, hopefully, we can uh, make it through this lengthier portion of, of Scripture together. So put on your Scripture seatbelt, and we'll, we'll see if we can get through these 25 verses together. Let me pray, and we'll ask God to speak to our hearts. Father, thank you for a chance to assemble, to worship you and your Son, Jesus. Lord, you are so worthy of our praise and our honor and our glory and Lord, thank you for giving us hope in the midst of a dark and a very difficult world that we find ourselves living in, especially in these last days. And Lord, you said your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And Lord, we need direction for our lives, every single one of us in this room this morning. And we believe your word's alive and powerful and that it can speak to us personally right where we're at. So God, we don't want to hear wise or persuasive words of a man. We want to experience the demonstration of your spirit and your power speaking personally to our hearts. So would you prepare us accordingly to hear what you'd want to say? And would you bless your word and speak to our hearts this morning? We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. You know, God's heart certainly for us is that we would each make good decisions in our lives and starting with the best decision anyone can make to receive Jesus Christ as your personal savior for the forgiveness of your sins and to have the assurance of heaven and eternal life after you die and to turn your life over to Jesus as the Lord of your life to make the decision to say you know what I'm tired of living self-governed it's not working with me being at the steering wheel. I'm empty. I'm crashing into things. I'm making mistakes and making messes. And, and to just come to that place where not only we accept Jesus to forgive our sin and our mistakes so that God can accept us into heaven, but ultimately as well just submitting, surrendering over our life to Jesus as Lord and letting him take control and following him as the Lord of our life. That is the best decision anybody can make and if you haven't made that decision yet this morning I would encourage you if you're looking for a good decision you might want to start right there it's the best decision you can make but God desires because he loves us like a father that we all make good decisions in our life because good decisions bring good benefits and good fruit into our lives well in relation to that the passage in front of us we're going to look at this morning in Luke chapter 23 this passage, when you look at it, actually, to me, really, it's a historical narrative, but it really also is a picture, in many ways, of how to make bad decisions. It's a picture, as well, of how to reject Jesus Christ. 
In fact, if there were a book written how to make bad decisions and how to reject Jesus Christ, this would probably be a very good chapter in that book because a lot of what you see going on in the lives of the religious leaders, of Pilate, of Herod, uh, it's a very clear picture and example of how to make really bad decisions in life and how to reject Jesus Christ with your life. Now, obviously, unless you are a glutton for self-inflicted punishment in your life or self-inflicted suffering, uh, it would go without saying, unless you want punishment and problems in your life or unless you're strangely determined to reject Jesus Christ because you want to experience eternal torment, suffering in hell forever and ever, uh, general reason would say it might be good to identify some of the things that are set before us in the passage about making bad decisions and rejecting Jesus Christ so that we can look at those examples God sets before us in his word here to avoid being guilty of such things in our own lives and experiencing the negative repercussions. Now, as we come into chapter 23, just to set the stage, remember the background at this point, Jesus has now been arrested. He's been taken into custody and the entire night he has been kept up going through the first three of six trials that Jesus goes through. He, we saw last time Jesus go through three religious trials where he was brought before Annas, and then he was brought before Caiaphas, the high priest, and then he was brought before the entire Sanhedrin, the religious council in that day. And during those three religious trials, Jesus was fiercely interrogated, remember? He was falsely accused. He was physically beaten and abused on numerous occasions, and he's been kept up all night long. In fact, beginning almost around verse 63, we saw where the abuse became really horrific, where it tells us that those who were keeping track of Jesus, they blindfolded him so he couldn't see where blows were coming from, and with a blindfold over his eyes, they were just punching and abusing him, and then mocking him, saying, hey, prophesy to us, who just punched you? As he's blindfolded, and they began to just really rough Jesus up and he's been beaten at this point, kept up all night long, falsely accused, brought now before the Sanhedrin where at the end of chapter 22 they were demanding him saying, look, if you're the Christ, tell us. If you're the Messiah, if you're the one and you proclaim to be the one whom God has prophesied that he would send to us, they were demanding him, then tell us, admit it. To which Jesus, not giving in to their demands, just explained to them how he was confident of what God's plan was for his life. To which, notice verse 70 of chapter 22, they then said, Are you the Son of God? So he said to them, the idea is in the affirmative, you are the one saying it, but that I am. And they then said, What further testimony do we need? At this point, in their mind, you're guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth, which now brings us chapter 23, verse 1. The narrative continues. Then the whole multitude arose and led him to Pilate. So at this point, the religious leaders take Jesus from their own interrogations all night long, and they now bring him to turn him over to the Roman government to be accused civilly of what they are looking for to get him on Trump charges of political and civil violations. They bring him to Pilate. Pilate, we know, was the procurator or governor during this time of Jesus' life. Uh, he reigned in that position from 26 to uh, 36 AD. And Pilate was the epitome 
and I mean no offense by this, but just being honest, he was the epitome of the stereotypical corrupt politician, whereby he only cared about saying and doing whatever he had to to retain his position and to hold on to his place there in where he was as a political leader. And he cared foremost about retaining his position and saying whatever and doing whatever he ultimately had to do to keep general peace and to hold on to his place there in a political standing. And we'll see that in the handling of his affairs here with Jesus very obviously in this chapter. So the religious leaders at this point, they now feel Jesus is utterly guilty of claiming to be God. This is blasphemy in their minds. And at this point, claiming to be God, claiming to be the Christ or the Messiah, they now are so incensed with hatred towards Jesus, they want him put to death as quickly as possible. That's why we read in verse 1 that after their own interrogations, once they think he's guilty of blasphemy, they now, it says, led him, verse 1, to Pilate. The reason the Jews are leading Jesus to Pilate now, to the Roman government, is because the Jews in this day did not have the legal right to execute anyone or to put anyone to death. Because the Romans ruled the land in that day, they reserved the right of capital punishment as they were the ruling government power at that time in the empire. So they're bringing Jesus now to Pilate because they want to get him charged on a civil basis, civil violations, because they realize only Rome can put this guy to death and we want to do anything we can to see him murdered somehow, to which verse 2 continues to tell us, so they began to accuse him before Pilate, saying, we have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now take notice in verse 2, at this point the accusations, now that they're publicly before Pilate and the Roman government, Really, they have nothing to do with religious matters at this point. These are civil violations and civil accusations they're trying to heap up against Jesus. Now, Pilate, understand, kept constant pulse on everything that was happening among the Jews there in the area of Israel where he was ruling over there. It is more than likely that he was already, Pilate, aware of the private interrogation of Jesus the prior night over religious concerns and that now they are coming to him with trumped up political and civil violations to accuse Jesus. Pilate probably sees straight through the smokescreen. Nonetheless, the Jews understand that if they want to see Jesus put to death, it would be a vain effort to come to Pilate with religious charges saying something, for example, hey, this man's claiming to be God. Because they knew Pilate would instantly dismiss that and say, look, what is that to me? Uh, that's your religious conviction. Uh, that has to do with your own religious beliefs. That has nothing to do with what concerns me and, and your Jewish beliefs. So he would quickly say, that's irrelevant. He'd dismiss the case. That's why you see them here bringing civil accusations, trying to find civil accusations and the distortion of truth as they bring Jesus before the Roman government. And particularly three things they try and say that he is violating according to civil law. First of all, they say in verse 2, this guy's an insurrectionist. 
He's inciting rebellion. They say, look, he, we found this guy perverting the nation. In other words, he is trying to corrupt the Roman Empire with his followings and his teachings. He are saying, he's saying things that are anti-government and, and it's going to cause problems in the nation. It's going to cause difficulty among our societies. This guy is a real problem for the nation. He's going to corrupt and pollute the whole nation teaching and saying the things that he is and he's undermining the, the the patriotic sense of the Roman nation he's a real problem civilly in the culture this guy's going to start a rebellion and he's going to incite one very soon secondly they try and accuse Jesus of saying that he's forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar this guy's teaching people not to pay their taxes to the government well that was a flat-out lie because we know that when they came to Jesus prior to this time, uh, the Herodians and some others, at one point they said to Jesus, should we pay taxes to which Jesus directly said publicly, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, he was saying, pay your taxes. Jesus taught clearly that they should pay. Their that was just a flat out lie, that one there. He's forbidding people to pay taxes. And thirdly, they tried to say Jesus was claiming to be a king. Notice, he, he is, claims to be Christ a king. Now, they're not talking about, in this sense, before Pilate, because he wouldn't care, a religious king over a group of people. They're saying this guy's trying to establish himself on a throne in a military sense or a political sense. He's trying to establish his own little kingdom and following. And that would be a crucial thing because that would challenge the authority of the Roman Empire. And they knew that would be a, a major no-no and that's something that, that Pilate would strongly respond to, that this guy could be planning some type of rebellion. Now, I want you to notice in verse 2, when you look at those accusations, how all of their accusations are one of two things. They are either direct lies or they're distortions of the truth in such a way to do what? To serve the selfish agenda of these individuals who are rejecting Jesus at this point in their life. And already, as you look at this scene opening up, I think you begin to see a picture already of how making bad decisions and rejecting Jesus often happens in all of our lives. First of all, if you're a note taker, consider this. We see people here seeking to direct the Lord rather than be directed by the Lord. They're seeking to direct the Lord rather than be directed by the Lord. Take notice in verse 1, that term, it says, they led him. They led Jesus. Hello? Wait a minute. People are not supposed to lead Jesus. Jesus is supposed to lead people. Something's clearly wrong when you have people trying to lead Jesus instead of being led by Jesus. But I tell you this, whenever people are rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what we're doing. We're rejecting the leading of Jesus in our life and we're saying we're the captain of our own fate. I'm the master of my own soul. I do what I want and if Jesus fits into my plans or he wants to get on board with what I'm doing, then I'm okay with that. And crazy as it is, we know that sometimes people can be so self-centered and self-driven that at times I watch people as well almost trying to push Jesus according to their plans and use Jesus to accommodate fulfilling their own will. And instead of letting the Lord lead them, they're trying to instead almost kind of make the Lord accommodate with what they want. And let me just say, not letting Jesus lead us 
is always a really unhealthy way to live your life. That's always going to result in bad decisions. That's always going to result in complications. Because the will of God for every life, the right response, is to receive Jesus' lordship and let him be the one to lead us. That he would be leading us. That's God's design. Take notice as well in this scene here, you also see this group of religious people and what are they doing? They're distorting and misrepresenting Jesus and who he is and they're doing it in one primary purpose because they want to fulfill the goal of achieving their own selfish agenda. They want to put these Jesus to death. So what do you have them doing? In order to achieve their own selfish agenda, they're distorting and misrepresenting who Jesus really is to accomplish their own agenda. And I'll tell you this, people do this in our culture. At times, sadly, for example, this is what pseudo-Christian cults do. Pseudo-Christian cults misrepresent and present a Jesus that fits their ideology. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Just like they're distorting the truth about who Jesus was before Pilate and what Jesus was really doing, and they're making their own presentation of Jesus, that wasn't who Jesus really was. And unfortunately, there's a lot of pseudo-Christian cults who use the name of Jesus, and they present a Jesus that isn't the Jesus of the Bible. And they misrepresent him just to make him accommodate their own doctrinal ideologies. Really bad thing. Really dangerous thing. Sometimes people can be guilty of this, again, even when they want to maybe live in sin. So they try and represent Jesus in such a way that he still can give approval and accommodate their sinful habit. And, and look, we don't want to misrepresent. Jesus is who Jesus is. And he's the unchanging Jesus of the Bible. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he hated 2,000 years ago, morally and spiritually, he hates today. And what he stood for and what he represented is the same Jesus that he is today. And we need to be careful of these things because they're a path to really bad decisions, even as these religious leaders here are kind of distorting the truth as they bring him before Pilate, bringing these accusations. Look at verse 3. It says, Pilate then responds, asks them, saying to Jesus now, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you seeking to proclaim and set yourself up a kingdom? And he answered and said to him, It is as you say. Now, John 19, if you want to do a little extra homework, gives a lot more of this interaction and conversation between Jesus and Pilate, fills in a few details. In fact, John uh, 18, the prior chapter to that, verse 34 to 36, says that when Pilate asked Jesus if he were a king, that Jesus said to him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests had delivered you to me. What have you done? To which Jesus answered this, My kingdom is not of this world. You see, Jesus made it very clear. I'm not trying to establish a kingdom here to overthrow the Roman Empire. Yeah, I'm a king, but he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. It was the kingdom of God. They were misrepresenting and misinterpreting this. And Jesus was trying to help Pilate see this reality as well. Verse 4 says, So Pilate then said to the chief priests and to the crowd that had brought Jesus with accusations, look at verse 4, he says, I find no fault in this man. That is the first, as we'll see, 
of multiple occasions whereby Pilate here, realizing the innocence of Jesus, testifies of it personally and publicly. Take notice of Pilate's words there. I find no fault in this man, in Jesus. He's going to say this multiple times throughout the chapter that he found no fault in Jesus. And can I say this morning for us, that's true. There is no fault in Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was sinless. Jesus was faultless and innocent. He was the sinless son of God who lived in a body of flesh as a man for a period of time historically, just like you and I being simultaneously the son of God and at the same time a man, 100% God, 100% man, but yet he came to do for us as mankind what we cannot do on this planet, and that is he lived a faultless life. He never sinned. He never made a mistake. He was the perfect man. The Bible teaches us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus committed no sin. Hebrews 4 says Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is, Jesus lived a life as a human, just like you and I, experiencing everything we do and every temptation, but yet he never failed. In thought, in word, in deed, he was faultless. Now, that Pilate says unknowingly, but he says it really accurately, I find no fault in this man. For you and I, that's really hard to relate to. Now, maybe not for you, but as faulty as I know I am, it's hard for me to really grasp the reality of what it would mean to be faultless because I am full of faults and I am constantly realizing, oops, again, that was my fault. What I thought or what I said or how I acted selfishly. And we constantly fail. There's no difference. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We know our faultiness and our mistakes and our regrets because of them. But the wonderful thing is Jesus never faulted. He never failed. He lived perfectly and sinlessly. And Pilate says this unknowingly, but he says it accurately. But it's very important for us to realize that doctrinal truth of the faultlessness and the sinlessness of Jesus because the reality is that means Jesus satisfied God's holy standard to get into heaven and he satisfied the perfection of heaven's standard for us so that we could have access now into heaven. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, this is the great exchange the Bible teaches us that God in his love made available to us as failing, faulty, sinful humanity so that we wouldn't be separated from God eternally because of our sinfulness against a holy God. That God created this exchange where he sent Jesus to this earth being in touch with his divinity being God but yet directly in touch with humanity so that we could be reconciled back to God and Jesus took a body of flesh he lived out the righteous requirement of God's holy law he never failed he never sinned he satisfied God's perfection and he who knew no sin then became our substitute and he then took all the guilt, the innocent one, the sinless one. He took all the guilt, all the punishment, all the pain for our sins as he died upon the cross for the guilty. And God says, listen, I've got this great exchange. The innocent one died for all the guilty. 
And now all the guilty people can be innocent. And that's the exchange God offers to us, but we have to receive it. We have to believe that and receive it. God made him who knew no sin to become a sin offering for us so that it says we then could become the righteousness of God in Jesus. So that as we accept Jesus, Jesus in essence says, listen, I live the sinless life and I'm righteous and acceptable for heaven's presence. At the same time, I paid the penalty for your sin. So here's what I'm offering. If you believe what I did for you, if you know that you're a sinner and you're faulty and you're a failure, I will take your sin and I will give you my righteousness. If you'll give me your sin, I'll forgive it and then I will give you the righteousness of God if you come to me in a relationship and you can have access. And therefore, as a Christian, if you've accepted Jesus Christ, God doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in his son, righteous, because Jesus is faultless. It's a marvelous thing. Performance-wise, yeah, we all fail. But positionally, you can be righteous before God if you understand that exchange and you come to Jesus and give him your sin and receive his righteousness on your behalf. And Pilate, how interesting, amidst his statement, he says something that is so sound and so accurate. I find no fault in this man. Verse 5 says, But they were more fierce, saying, But he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, which was up north, down to this place there in Jerusalem in the south. And when Pilate heard, notice, Pilate heard Galilee, he asked, is this man a Galilean? And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So as the religious leaders become insistent and they're trying to push the issue. Notice, Pilate here hears them offer up a piece of information about Jesus being from Galilee. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth in the north. His headquarters for ministry were in the north in the Galilee area. And because of that, he hears, now Pilate, wait a minute, this, this guy's from Galilee up north? That's Herod's jurisdiction. Herod the Tetrarch, who was the same Herod, remember, who John the Baptist rebuked for his immoral lifestyle, and as a result, Herod murdered John the Baptist to silence him for his righteous voice, convicting him of his sin. This Herod ruled in the area of Galilee up north where Jesus was from and where they say, hey, this is where it all started up north in the Galilee area. And Herod, this Herod here, Herod the Great, this guy again, like this guy was selfish, he was arrogant and he was extremely insecure. People said it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was his son. Because if anything threatened his throne, even his own family members, he'd murder them. And he was extremely insecure about his throne. Extremely insecure. So Pilate here, hearing he's from Herod's jurisdiction in the north... And knowing that Herod's in Jerusalem, just like he was at that time, because they would come to Jerusalem to keep Jewish enthusiasm under control during the Passover, Pilate, look what he does now. He sees a perfect opportunity to do what? To pass the buck politically. Perfect. I don't have to deal with this guy. He's from Herod's jurisdiction. And he looks now and says, wait, this is a perfect opportunity to wash my hands of this very sensitive matter among the Jews. And I don't have to address this. And I can escape having to deal with a serious and difficult matter to have to be forced to confront a decision and to be a strong enough man to do what is right 
personally in my own life. So he transfers the responsibility and he's trying to sort of, again, pass the buck and escape having to deal with making right decisions himself. By way of application, can I say this morning, be careful in your life when you find yourself on occasion looking for ways to escape making right decisions that you know you should be making yourself. Because we all have a tendency to do this, just like Pilate. Whether it's because of cowardice, or we're concerned about our reputation, or if I make this decision, how's it going to affect me? Who's going to like me? What if I lose my job? What if my friends in school don't think I'm cool anymore? And, and sometimes we have this tendency where we don't want to take a stand for what's right, we don't want to take responsibility to say the right thing or to do the right thing. And instead, we look for ways to escape having to make right and righteous choices. And we look for ways to kind of pass the buck so that we don't have to take a stand and be willing to stand for Jesus and to say, and Pilate here, this is what he's doing. In a very bad decision, in his own conscience, he's simply looking for a way to escape from having to do what's right himself. And he says, hey, I got a perfect plan. I'm sending this guy over to Herod. Let him take responsibility. He's from the Galilee area anyway. So he says, send him over to Herod. Verse 8 says, now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had, notice, listen to what this says, desired a long time to see Jesus. Because he had heard many things about him. And he hoped to see some miracle done by him. So notice, the Bible tells us Herod, interestingly enough, because he had heard about Jesus before and his ministry activities, Herod, it tells us here, was very curious about Jesus. He was curious about Jesus, but he obviously was not interested in living for Jesus. He had heard things about him, but he really was not really interested in following him or submitting to him. He, he kind of was, again, he becomes a picture of wanting to seek Jesus and find things out about Jesus, but really for some wrong motives and for a, a wrong agenda in his own heart. He hears about Jesus. He's glad because he's kind of curious about him. But yet verse 8 tells us, look at the end of verse 8. It says that he hoped to see some miracle done by Jesus. Herod just wanted to see a magic show. He just thought, hey, I've heard about this guy's miracles. Neat. I can finally see this guy firsthand. Maybe you'll do some sign or wonder. And Herod, clearly, as you look at him in this scene, he has one intention, and that's simply this. Herod is willing to be a spectator regarding Jesus, but that is far as he's going to go. He's willing to be a spectator about Jesus, but he is not going any further than just being a spectator. There's no way he's going to come and become a personal participant to follow this Jesus or to let Jesus be a part of his life on a personal level. He has no real interest in the person of Jesus. He just kind of wants to benefit from Jesus. He's thinking in his mind, hey, interesting. I'll get to see this guy and maybe kind of like a genie in a bottle. I, I hear the miracles he's doing and maybe I can get some wishes fulfilled. If I see him, maybe he could do a few of those miracles for me. Maybe he could entertain me or maybe he could do a miracle too to bless me. And he rejects Jesus personally, but he loved to use Jesus as a resource in his life personally in the same way. And I'll tell you, sadly, there are people in our world who kind of have the same attitude about the Lord. 
like Herod. They're really not interested in following Jesus. They're really not interested in accepting Jesus' forgiveness for their sins. They're really not interested in following Jesus as the Lord of their life and surrendering their life to him. But they do find that Jesus can be resourceful. That Jesus can be someone to utilize in certain ways however they can. So they don't really have a sincere interest in following him and personally submitting to him. But if there's some way that they can utilize Jesus, you know, like how people, they know somebody maybe who has a little power influence and they drop a name and you drop a name and something gets done for you. And some people, they kind of do that with Jesus' name. They try and use the name of Jesus and, and claim Jesus or quote a Bible verse and, and they're just trying to utilize Jesus as a reason. They don't really want to live for Jesus. They want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to live for Jesus or obey Jesus. They just, they just want to kind of utilize him. Or, like Herod here, wants to maybe see a miracle. Some people, I find, their attitude towards Jesus is, again, they don't really want to follow Jesus or live for Jesus or, or really commit their life to Jesus on a personal level and daily fellowship but boy, oh boy, they like to use Jesus as the emergency hotline for when their personal life breaks down somehow. Got to call up Jesus because this is falling apart or now I made a mistake or I made a mess of things. I'm not living for the Lord. My life's a mess. Consequences are all around me. So I'm going to dial up 1-800-JESUS-FIX-MY-PROBLEM. Come do a miracle, Jesus. Come save me. Bail me out of this. Let me see one of your miracles and get me out of this. And, and can I just say, listen, that's sad. What you see Herod doing here, that's a sad testimony to our human hearts where we maybe don't want to commit to Jesus on a personal level, but we think, well, but if I utilize Jesus, I can kind of get some personal perks out of him. What a sad testimony. And Herod here, this very selfish, arrogant man who you see is going to reject Jesus completely, He's just kind of rubbing his hands. Oh, great. I've been wanting to see this guy. Maybe I'll see some miracle. So Pilate, verse 9, questioned Jesus with many words. But notice it says, He, Jesus, answered him nothing. That must have been an eerie silence. As Herod was interrogating Jesus on these civil charges, as he had to, as a tetrarch of the region of Galilee, He's interrogating Jesus in relation to these accusations. And notice it says, Jesus answered him nothing. In other words, Jesus did not speak. He didn't defend himself. He didn't justify the accusations. Interesting, he doesn't rebuke Herod for his attitude in his heart, which no doubt he could see he was God. He doesn't challenge Herod. Instead, Jesus seeing into this man's heart and what his motivation really was, Jesus just goes silent on Herod. Now, can I just say, it is never a good thing when God goes pur purposely silent and stops speaking in our lives. There's a major red flag when the Lord goes silent in our lives. And, and, and here, sadly, again, this reminds me of Saul, where all of a sudden, remember Saul of Tarsus in the Old Testament, as he became rebellious and just defied God, and, and he was holding his, his position, but his heart was so far off course. And then ultimately it says that Saul sought the Lord for direction, and it says that God didn't speak to him. God stopped speaking to him to indicate his complete disapproval of what was going on in his life. And here it says that Jesus, he, he just answers nothing. He says nothing to Herod. But notice verse 10, if he wasn't going to defend the accusations, again, here comes his accusers. Verse 10 again, 
the chief priests and the scribes, they stood and vehemently, I use with great passion, they vehemently accused him. In other words, Jesus, if you're not going to defend yourself in these accusations, well, we're going to make sure the accusations are clear against you. And verse 11 says, Then Herod with his men of war treated Jesus with contempt, and they mocked him, and they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and then they sent him back to Pilate. So Herod now, like the religious leaders, like Pilate and the Roman soldiers under his charge, he now, with his soldiers, enters into participating in this same mockery of Jesus, the same abuse of Jesus. He was already bloodied and beaten, and now they wrap a kind of a royal robe around him at this point and begin to mock him publicly as this king. And, and you can almost just picture this scene of disgraceful treatment. You know, sometimes we see like childhood mockery on a school ground or we see some kid getting picked on just you know by the a group of kids just in a really nasty way they're just mocking and humiliating some child you think oh man that's horrible well, i mean this is like 10 times this. this is god this is god and here he's beaten and bloodied and they're putting a robe around him saying, oh hail king king you're a king and, and they're just mocking and treating jesus it says here with contempt that's a strong word with contempt. To treat somebody with contempt means to treat somebody dishonorably as if they are utterly a disgraceful person, as if they're despicable. It's the exact opposite of what it means to show admiration for a person. They disdained Jesus. They were acting like Jesus was just despicable and dishonoring him in every way. And why? Well, I can tell you one reason why, because Herod obviously did not take Jesus seriously. He didn't take Jesus seriously at all. That's why he treated him with such utter contempt and disdained him the way that he did. And sadly, there are those in our world, you and I see it every day, who don't take Jesus seriously at all. And there are many people in our culture that treat the person and the name of Jesus Christ with complete contempt. If you work on a construction site, if somebody hits their thumb with a hammer, listen to what they say. Jesus Christ! Why don't people go, Buddha? You see what I'm saying? Our world has contempt for Jesus Christ. And the Son of God and the Savior of the world and the very anti-Christian spirit that exists in our world, so many in our world, they mock Jesus. Professors in college... We don't mock others, but we will mock Christianity. We will, we will seek to infiltrate the mind of our college students that this Bible stuff is archaic, it's narrow-minded, this Christianity. And, and, and it's amazing how people have such contempt for Jesus in a very real way in our culture and treat him with such contempt. What is even sadder to me is when people who profess to be fathers of Jesus, treat him with contempt. And we kind of despise and insult Jesus by the way we live instead of admiring and adoring Jesus the way that we should. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 warns us, if Moses' rejection says, those who rejected Moses all died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, of how much worse punishment do you suppose, he says, will be thought those worthy who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, 
counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified as a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. Man, Jesus' spirit is a spirit of grace. You can't get any more gracious than Jesus, the Son of God, coming, forgiving, loving, healing, helping. And then we insult the spirit of grace when we just despise Jesus and treat him contemptuously rather than holding him up to the value and the honor and the worth that he really deserves in our world and in our lives. And here they're just contemptuously treating Jesus. Pilate then gets him back as verse 11 says that Herod sends him back to Pilate and that very day Pilate and Herod, notice, became friends with each other. For previously they had been at enmity with each other. So isn't that interesting? Their mutual rejection of Jesus, prior political tensions are resolved and they become friends because of their mutual stand of rejection towards Jesus Christ ultimately. Yeah, isn't that interesting how it is so true where we stand in relation to Jesus many times has a direct effect upon our relationships with other people. Just like these two here. In their personal rejection of Jesus, they both somehow find friendship now. Often, where we stand in relationship with Jesus will determine who our friends are and who our enemies are. The truth of the matter is, when people are pursuing sin, they like company. And in the same way, when people are pursuing Jesus, there are tremendous bonds that are formed. And where we stand in relationship to Jesus, many a times, affects our human relationships on this earth. And here, these two, interesting, they now had an animosity that was resolved through these events. Verse 13 says, Pilate then, when he called together the chief priests, said to the people, you have brought this man to me, notice, as one who misleads the people. And indeed, he says, having examined him, having examined him, he says, in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things which you're accusing him of. Again, I see him as innocent. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been found in him. He's trying to reiterate his innocence, to convince them to quell their passions and anger towards Jesus. And Pilate, keep watching this, he's looking for a way to release Jesus from out from under his own conscience and responsibility which is wrestling of the truth of who Jesus is in his heart as he's dealing with this whole matter. Verse 16 he says, I will therefore chastise him. The idea is scourge him where they with a, a cat of nine tails would whip a prisoner an excruciating painful experience to extract uh, them to give testimony about things. He says, listen, I'm going to chastise him and then release him for it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast. So what's Pilate doing? He's trying to escape the responsibility and now he's looking for a way. He's made multiple attempts to no avail to try and quell this whole situation to get Jesus off his hands and out from under the conviction in his own conscience. This is an innocent man. What am I doing? So... Again, wanting to maintain his position, he's looking for a way to satisfy the bloodthirsty hatred in the hearts of those who've turned Jesus over. So he says, listen, let me punish the guy. I'll beat him, I'll scourge him, and I'll severely punish him. Maybe that will satisfy your bloodthirsty hatred. And then as I always do, and it was historical, at the time of Passover, they would release one prisoner 
back to the Jews. It was a way in, in political matters to just indicate good favor in their rule over them to try and quell any opportunity of a, a riotous mob during the Passover season. So he says, listen, let me, I'll punish the guy. I'll beat him for you. I know that you're, you think he's guilty of things. I'll punish him as a prisoner and then how about I'll turn him back over as your annual prisoner that I release back into your custody. But verse 18 says, they cried out at once saying, away with this man. Release to us Barabbas who had been, notice, thrown into prison for a certain rebellion. The other gospels tell us he also was guilty of, of you know, causing you know, not only rebellion but robbing the territories around. So this guy's a robber he committed rebellious acts and he also was guilty of being a murderer. So he says, listen, let me turn Jesus back over to you as your annual prisoner. They do what? They reject Jesus and instead, look who they request. We don't want you to give us Jesus back. Give us instead Barabbas. Give us a known criminal who is guilty of robbery, rebellion, and murder. That's who we want. Give him to us instead. What a fitting picture there in the Bible of the depravity of human beings' hearts and how darkened our understanding can be and can become. Listen, once a person begins to reject Jesus, it is amazing how depraved and darkened their understanding can become. Think about what they're doing here. They're rejecting the Son of God who can forgive their sin and instead saying, give us a murderer back in our culture. <laughs> give us a thief. Give us a robber back. We don't want the one who can forgive our sins. Instead, they're saying, we want what's sinful more. But see, when people start to reject Jesus, when somebody rejects Jesus, their understanding becomes so darkened and the decisions people start to make in destruction in their lives are astonishing. And this is just one picture of our capacity of human beings on a societal level and as well on a personal level. We don't want Jesus, but give us what's utterly sinful and wicked instead. Verse 20 says, Pilate therefore wishing to release Jesus again called out to them, but they shouted, again, insistently saying, here's the words, crucify him, crucify him. So now with loud, insistent shouts, this angry mob, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate is in fear at this point. This emotion-charged crowd is going to become riotous if I don't do something soon. But verse 22, he makes another effort and says to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore punish him, chastise him, and then I'm going to let him go. But they were, it says, insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of the men and the chief peace prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown in prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will." So as they continue to become insistent and demanding with loud voices, no, 
away with this man. John 19 tells us that in this moment, they also shouted these words, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend, for whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. Now that pushed Pilate over the edge. Because at that point, they were threatening Pilate's loyalty to Caesar and to the Roman Empire. At this time, historically, Pilate had already made two major mistakes in his rulership and caused civil disorder among the Jews. And in that culture, under just Roman law, a people of a province had right to go to Rome and to accuse the one who ruled over them for misgovernment. Pilate already was not in good standing with Rome. And this threat now that he was not loyal to the throne of Rome caused him to realize, I have got to do whatever I got to do, no matter what compromises I got to make to put an end to this thing. So in his mind, Pilate rationalizes sometimes compromises and wrong things are just what you got to do if that's what settles something. So if you got to settle something, you just compromise. If you got to settle something, you just lie or cheat a little bit. And Pilate adopts this idea where it says here, notice in verse 23, that as they were insistent and demanding, their voices prevailed and he gave in to their wishes. And what you see Pilate doing is making a major personal failure in his own life that he would have to be guilty of then and he would live with with regret from that time forward and possibly for all of eternity because he knows the truth in his heart. You see it in the chapter. He knows what's right. He knows the truth about Jesus, but yet he's letting the voices of error that are insistent and demanding win over in his heart and he just compromises and gives in and he listens to the voice of error rather than doing the right thing in his life. And can I say this morning, I know that the voices of error in our world and the voices of error and temptation to sin, they bombard us and they're demanding and they're insistent. But can I encourage you this morning, you and I have to learn how to refuse the insistency of doing what's wrong when temptation to sin comes or when our world is pressuring us. We have to learn how to resist that and do what's right. The Bible tells us that we should be finding out what's acceptable to the Lord. Hey, this morning, as an encouragement to our hearts, let's find out what's acceptable to the Lord. Not what's acceptable to the world or acceptable to... What's acceptable to the Lord? The Bible says today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. If you hear His voice, His voice, don't harden your heart to that. Listen to the voice of Jesus. That's the way to make good decisions. Let's stand, let's pray. We'll have our musicians come and we'll close in a final song of worship this morning. Father, thank you for your word, for the truths and insights it conveys to our hearts and lives. How, Lord, just like a, a sharp two-edged sword, it lovingly but yet honestly speaks to us in a personal way. And Lord, would you help us to avoid the path of error. Lord, we, we don't want to walk in a way that would be self-destructive or damaging. We want to do what is right and pleasing in your sight. Give us the grace to do that, we ask. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.